On Election Day 2020, marijuana legalization initiatives passed in five states, Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, Montana, and Mississippi. According to Politico, one out of every three Americans now lives in a state where recreational marijuana is legal. Yeah, so Laura, the question continues to be, is the perception in the financial industry about working with marijuana-related businesses changing? According to reports from FinCEN, after a steady five-year incline between 2014 and 2019, the number of depository institutions providing banking services to MRBs has actually declined over the last year. To get the latest information and insight about this important topic, we talked to CSI's Director of Global Risk and Compliance just ahead of CSI Customer Experience 2020. We asked her, as a former compliance officer, how would you advise your organization if they began showing interest in working with MRBs? I would start out with some discussion around requirements, education, compliance. Um, it's not about whether you agree or disagree with the legislation. It's about doing it the right way. I'm Andy Goldstein. And I'm Laura Sewell. Stay tuned for our conversation about working with marijuana-related businesses on this episode of FinTech Focus from CSI. Here to talk about all things having to do with marijuana-related businesses is Becky Laporte, CSI's Director of Global Risk and Compliance. Becky, thank you for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. And I want to start by talking about the election and how it affects uh, the industry because Arizona, New Jersey, South Dakota, and Montana all passed legislation on election night permitting the possession of marijuana. And I believe Mississippi passed the ballot initiative requiring that um, their rules and regulations be set up by July, 2021. So now we have 36 states that permit medicinal use and 15 that uh, allow recreational use. Those are pretty strong numbers. Do you think in, in your experience, are you seeing a shift in perception about working with marijuana related businesses? Possibly, uh, you know, obviously, Years ago, we weren't even talking about this. We were talking about maybe one state that had it for medicinal purposes. And we're starting to see sort of a, you know, a waterfall effect of more states coming in line with it. Uh, but at this point, has it hit the federal level? No. Will it hit the federal level? Maybe. Uh, you know, a lot of that, of course, depends on the kind of the climate of our, our country, especially, you know, we're in the middle of election season. So, you know, that could go any direction at any point in time. Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. So that, of course, weighs into it as well. You know, even if it is something that the climate of the country wants, is it going to take priority over other things? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but I can tell you that if that does happen, it will shift a lot of things, not just, you know, being able to use and possess marijuana, but being able to um, work through a financial institution to use it as a bank, to invest, to have insurance underwritten, um, and things of that nature that we're not seeing with any regularity today. So it, a lot of it's going to depend on priorities uh, from a federal level, I think. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if five years from now, Andy, you and I are having a conversation about the new legislation in place for now that it's legal federally. So mm. it definitely could happen. 
I've seen FinCEN reports that that actually show that the number of financial institutions working with MRBs is declining. Do you think the trend of decline with financial institutions just kind of saying, eh, I don't think this is for us. Like, do you see that continuing over the next year, two years, five years? Um, and, and again, I, I will say yes, Andy, from, from my opinion, and I might answer it differently if we weren't in a pandemic. Uh, but again, yeah. and I, can't, I hate to keep going back to that, but it's just the reality. No, but it's true. It's it, it, it's changed the world, you know, right. in so many different Absolutely. aspects. Yeah. So you have situations. So just even, so let me just un- take off a marijuana hat for a minute <laughs> and, and think about what, not that I walk around in a marijuana hat, but, uh, <laughs> but um, think about it from a bank perspective. Like think of all the changes that a bank has had to do. Think of all the changes that an insurance company has had to do, or even a broker dealer, or gosh, even casinos, if you think about it, like what a huge shift in life that we've all had to come through. So we have to figure out how do we work in this new normal, you know, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick on banks because that's kind of where, you know, the Safe Banking Act would start. But, you know, we're accustomed to having open branches and people in those branches and sort of a routine day to day and how we manage things behind the scenes whether it's from a compliance perspective or an operations perspective with human beings in, in with other human beings. Right. And now a lot of things have gone digital. Uh, we don't have as much face-to-face contact, which might increase some of our risk around fraud. We might have to allocate resources in a different way. And oh, by the way, so let me put my marijuana hat back on. <laughs> oh, by the way. It matches uh, your shoes. So your marijuana <laughs> shoes. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I put that back on. And now in addition to all this other stuff I have to think about, now I have to figure out how am I going to do my ongoing due diligence and file all these extra SARS for this business. So I think as long as we're dealing with this pandemic and and whatever waves are going to come through this over however long it lasts, um, I think that a a lot of financial institutions are truly looking at how can I reallocate to keep the core of my business going? And maybe some of those other ventures that they thought were great opportunities might have to sit on a shelf for a little bit. That makes so sense. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that trend continues in that direction. And Becky, speaking of the pandemic, how, how has it affected MRBs? There's, so when a lot of this first started, they were, you know, and again, this is, I'm not, just to clarify, I'm not taking a side either way. I'm just sharing mm-hmm. Some of the sides, um, you know, when all this started and we were all getting titled as whether we were essential businesses or not essential businesses, uh, a lot of the marijuana distributors felt they were essential because they see themselves similar to a pharmacy, like providing some type of medicinal purpose, whereas others were seeing it more of like a recreational uh, thing where you go have fun, like an arcade or something. So it was, are they essential or are they not essential? So most of them got shut down because initially they were deemed as not essential. Um, so there was some challenge there from a revenue perspective. Um, then when a lot of these PPP loans came out and there was um, legislation put in place to help some of these smaller businesses ride that initial wave of shutdowns in the pandemic, uh, none of the marijuana related businesses are eligible because it goes back to that SBA loan requirement Um, where you cannot approve a loan for anybody that's engaged in illegal activity at federal, state, or local. So even if if it's legal in a state, it's not legal at the federal level. The SBA is a federal agency, so you can't provide loans to those folks. 
So for those that might have been struggling pre-pandemic, um, now they're not getting the support that they feel they need to move to the next point. Um, so I would imagine that there have probably been people go out of business because of that, um, or there's might have been some consolidation to the larger ones that had some of that. Um, and we've talked before, I mean, these are very cash heavy businesses. So we're living in a world now where some places are a little apprehensive about taking cash. A lot of our bank branches are still not open um, or you're handling large amounts of cash. So, you know, there's a struggle there too, because Visa and MasterCard won't, don't, won't let you use their cards to purchase marijuana. Um, so now you've got to use cash. Well, how can you use cash if you can't go someplace to use that cash and then deposit that cash in a bank? So I think there's some very unique challenges that this industry has faced with the pandemic. You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're discussing the pros and cons of working with marijuana-related businesses with Becky Laporte, CSI's Director of Global Risk and Compliance. It's funny that going back to dealing with the cash, when you talk to someone that isn't, you know, intimately tied to either the financial industry or, or the, uh, you know, working with MRBs from the uh, financial perspective, a lot of them don't realize that a big problem that institutions have is that, you know, the, especially the ones that obviously that do work with MRBs, when the cash comes in, it stinks of weed. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if, if you're in a fairly, uh, if you're in a conservative community, you don't necessarily want your bank to smell like the set of a Cheech and Chong movie. And it's a factor that has to be determined. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even from, and that's a great point, Andy, and even beyond that, so you're a bank, so you're taking in cash and you're giving out cash. So you take in, you know, $50,000 in cash from an MRB and it smells, how do you segregate that in your vault or in your drawers because the next person that comes in with a cash order that needs cash might be, you know, a very small local store that doesn't want their customers getting cash that smells like weed. So how do you segregate that out and air it out? Um, and with controls in a, in a bank, especially from a vault perspective, that's, that's an added challenge. Absolutely. It's not like you can hang it on a clothesline outside and let it air out. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah, I mean, you walk into a bank and there's a bunch of incense burning, you know, yeah. <laughs> Or just walk into a credit union and there's Cheeto wrappers everywhere. You just don't know, you know? I know, exactly. <laughs> I'm not a, uh, obviously, I don't work in a bank or a, or a credit union, so I don't quite understand the, um, the, the, the thought process around the work that has to happen when you work with a marijuana-related business. But it, is the amount, is the SAR element, is that something that would, that would make or break the, the potential relationship? Or is that just kind of like, eh, it's just kind of a byproduct and they're willing to look past it for the amount of revenue that they can generate? So when you're looking at, so to answer your question, yes, it is the paperwork, but it's also the risk you're shouldering. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and even from like a lending perspective, even if this passes, the SBA cannot approve loans to applicants that are engaged in illegal activity under federal, state, or local law. Well, the State Banking Act just gives some, some wiggle room for banks but it doesn't legalize marijuana at the federal level. So you still cannot lend under the SBA to marijuana related businesses because they're illegal under the federal level. So now I'm taking on the risk of potentially lending to someone who's a marijuana related business, but I'm still violating a different federal requirement as opposed to the Safe Banking Act. 
Um, and then the SAR filing, a SAR is a pretty robust form. There's multiple sections to it, um, answering multiple different questions. And then there's a whole narrative at the end. So even if it's a, I used to call them slam dunk SARs, ones that we know are quick and easy. We have stuff already pre-filled. We're going to do the narrative. Even if there's not a lot of investigation behind it, and it's really just something you're doing from a requirement it's still probably going to take you 30 minutes to file that SAR because you still have to fill it out. You still have to take a look at it. Generally, there's an approval process within the financial institution, which there should be because they control who can actually file SARS. Then you have to go into the system, the federal system to actually do the filing. And then you have to you know, maintain it because it's a record of the firm and you're going to have to maintain that. So even if it's a slam dunk SAR, at, even if it's quick, it's going to be probably 30 minutes. If you're now looking at something that is a little more robust, you're looking at who the client is, who they're working with, you're doing a little bit of an investigation, that 30-minute process could take days. By the time you allocate somebody to do the investigation, to do all the research and all the review, a 30-minute SAR that now becomes slightly more complex could take days of work could be weeks of work if you're doing a real investigation or a month. So imagine from a headcount perspective, even if you're doing, you know, you're banking that MRB or you're doing investing with that MRB or you're selling insurance that MRB, it depends on, you know, what vertical you're in. You're, even if it's 30 minutes, if you have 20 customers and you're doing 20 SARS a week, that's 20 SARS times 30 minutes. If, if a couple of them take a day or two, well, you know, now you really messed yourself up. Yeah. So you're going to have to add the head count. You will have to make sure they're highly, highly confidential. So you have to make sure that you have controls in place so that no one else can see them um, outside of the, a very limited group and things of that nature. So to answer your question, yes, part of it is the documentation. The SAR issue is a large part of it. But even if you are just onboarding someone and you're doing the due diligence, that's an added amount of work you're not accustomed to either. So today, let's say you own an MRB. Today, you provide all the documentation that proves that you are a licensed, registered MRB in a state where it's legal. Mm -hmm. But maybe six months from now, you do something not so good. So they pull your licensing and registration. Well, you're not going to come back to your financial institution and say, oh, by the way, I'm not legal anymore. <laughs> you yeah, might. So <laughs> it's a cent I mean, it puts the impetus on the financial institution to do all of this compliance legwork and preparation before they make any transactions. Correct. Yeah. Maybe it's a little cost inhibitive from a, from a uh, staff standpoint, really handicapping and taking up too much time from, from staff, from, from other duties. So um, it's just not a very uh, attractive area of business for institutions. I, I agree, Laura, because it's, you have the staffing component of it and now you have, you have the, you have the technology component of it. So let's say that you're doing your normal transaction monitoring from an AML perspective you're somehow going to have to come up with a way to flag who those businesses are that you've deemed as marijuana related. So you've done your due diligence and let's say you have a million customers. So you're looking at all your million customers accounts through your transaction monitoring. You have a certain algorithm that you're looking for based on your risk model, but 
out of those million customers, you've decided to do business with 100 MRBs, which sounds like nothing, but you'll have to flag those 100 MRBs that every single time they do a transaction, you have to look at it and you likely are going to have to file a SAR on every single transaction. So, wow, that's, that's a ton. And I also now have to figure out how to adjust my technology and my transaction monitoring to flag those folks when they do something, even if it's not within my normal algorithm, it's just, you know, they paid $5,000 to some vendor to upgrade their air conditioning unit. So they did that, but now I've got to file a SAR and let the federal government know they just spent $5,000 to upgrade their air conditioning unit. You're listening to FinTech Focus. We're discussing the pros and cons of working with marijuana-related businesses with Becky Laporte, CSI's Director of Global Risk and Compliance. So Becky, when we're talking about MRBs, um, you know, there are some benefits to businesses uh, working with MRBs. Can you can you talk about some of the positive effects on businesses if they choose to uh, take on a relationship with an MRB? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, it is it is a great revenue opportunity. So there is a lot of demand for services for that industry, and the supply is more limited than normal. Um, so if you're somebody that's willing to work with MRBs and shoulder that risk, then there's a great opportunity for you to grow your business. You know, if if there's a stigma around it because of the community that you live in, you know, well, perhaps you're working with some, you know, a large group of people that that stigma doesn't exist. So you're able to grow that business and you're not worried about that other sector that has a concern with it because they can find their service elsewhere. So it's a great way to increase revenue. Um, but with that, of course, there's an increased cost and compliance. So, you know, if you are a, if you are a financial institution, then it's some of the stuff you know, that we've talked about in reference to documentation. Are you documenting properly? Are you doing your due diligence? Are you doing your SAR filing? Um, Are you staying on top of what's going on in the states where you do business? So do you know what the legislation is? Do you know what uh, requirements they have to register? Uh, Each state has something probably a little bit different. Their forms would definitely look different. So knowing what that is and knowing what those forms look like so that you're not opening yourself up to fraud. Um, Because, you know, for every place that has this as a legal business, there's also a black market that's riding the wave of that. They are not registering. They are not doing what they're supposed to do. But because they're in a state where it's legal, they hope people will get lax so that they can do what they want to do and not have to pay taxes on it and all that other stuff. So understanding all of that Understanding what normal activity is for that particular type of business. If you are dealing with a cash intensive business and you are a bank, do you have the proper controls in place for that extra cash? And that, that could mean, you know, more space in your vault. It could be more staff. It could be more security, whatever that is um, to handle that. But keep in mind, if a material part of your business is now directed towards the marijuana industry, you too could become a marijuana-related business. Um, And, you know, I've I've spoken about this before. I think we talked a bit about this last year. But, you know, just to kind of bring everybody up to speed, think think of a company like uh, GE or a very large uh, light bulb company. 
Uh, I think we're all familiar with GE. You know, I would bet you that the vast majority of their business has nothing to do with marijuana. Um, mm -hmm. Not to say that there aren't people who purchase lights created by GE to grow marijuana, uh, but it's not a material part of their business. Mm -hmm. we, we all probably use light bulbs in our house every day and it has nothing to do with marijuana. However, if my company is called you know, Green Grow Incorporated and I'm really focused on the marijuana industry, I'm in a state, let's say I'm in California in a state where it's legal and I'm really going out and I'm marketing to the marijuana growers and my light bulbs are really special because they help the plant grow at a better and faster rate. Uh, now the majority of my customers, I might sell some grow lights to people who grow tomatoes too, but the majority or a material part of my business is marijuana. I'm now a marijuana related business. So not only am I going to have challenges <laughs> Um, potentially from my own risk perspective, but now I might have trouble finding a bank that takes my money because I'm deriving a material part of my income from marijuana. So it, it can be a double-edged sword. It can be really lucrative and, and working in a very different and emerging and growing market, but it also can hinder your ability to do your business the way you're accustomed to. Put yourself in the, in the shoes now of a compliance officer for an organization. How would you advise your executive team if they began showing interest in working with an MRB? So I would, number one, I think that um, a good place to start is sort of training and educating your executive team on some of the, the challenges that will be affiliated with that. I, I sat in a compliance role in the industry for a number of years and um, you know, a lot of times you'll have the business looking at this great opportunity for revenue and growth and you want to support that from a compliance standpoint, absolutely. But you know that in order to do that, there's going to be some front end and potential ongoing costs. And, and in, especially with MRBs, that is true. Um, if you're running on a very typical uh, crew for compliance, you probably don't have enough people to manage what would be required for MRB. So educating your executive team around uh, what the compliance requirements are, what those mean. Um, because honestly, if you've never filed a SAR, you might not know what goes into it and nor should you be expected to. So being able to sit down with your executive team and say, hey, we'll have to file these SARs. We will have to file these regularly. Even providing for them a blank copy of a SAR and saying, Here, here's what a SAR form looks like. And this is what we have to do to fill it out. This is how much time it's going to take. Uh, and then we also need other controls in place. We will need to be educated and partner with the potentially the states to understand their registration requirements. You might have to do some front end training with your staff to get a good understanding, um, really educating yourself on what red flags are about that. So there's, there should be, to do this in the right way, there should be some front end work and some front end strategy to prep for that and then get the right tools and controls in place and then walk down that path. Um, but, you, and you all know, sometimes, you know, great ideas come up and, and you flip the switch a little too early and now you're sort of running around trying to play catch up. And that's certainly not something you wanna do in this space. So if I was working in an organization where that tended to be the direction the organization wanted to go, I would start out with some discussion around requirements, education, compliance, 
Um, it's not about whether you agree or disagree with the legislation. It's about doing it the right way and making sure that, that you are protecting the firm um, from any potential uh, risk or losses and sanctions and fines. Gut instinct, weighing the revenue potential and the risk calculus. Would you work with an MRB right now if you were a compliance officer at an organization? Yes or no? Would I, would I take it on as a, as a large business model? I probably would not know. Would I decide based on um, proper controls to maybe take on a business or two businesses that I feel are mutually beneficial? I might, but I would need to make sure I have the controls in place, but I don't know that I would necessarily make it, make it a big part of my business model at this point. Becky, we appreciate, as always, you taking some time to chat with us. Thank you for giving us some great insight as usual. And uh, we look forward to hearing you talk at CX20. You're welcome. And I, you know, as always, I enjoy working with you and I'm happy to, to participate at any point in time. And I hope it was valuable to the audience. And I appreciate you giving me this opportunity today. Thank you very much. That's it for this week's episode of FinTech Focus. Thanks again to Becky Laporte for talking with us, and we appreciate all of you for listening. We look forward to hearing more from Becky at our upcoming CX20, which is completely virtual and free. Head to csiconf.com to register now and save your spot. And check out the content hub at csiweb.com to listen to previous episodes of this podcast, or you can get them and subscribe from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and many other popular podcast platforms. We'll be back soon with another episode, but until then, you can get the latest from CSI on Twitter at CSI Solutions or on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash CSI Solutions. We'll see you next time.